Mm. I said that? Man, that was, that was good. I didn't realize I said that. That was good. Wow. I'm pretty good. That was all right. This is an erase marker, yeah? I found it over here. Um, I'm just writing down a note here. When Liam said something, it reminded me of something I want to say to you. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that was good. Anybody else? Sarah. Yeah, it's real similar to, remember yesterday I talked to you about the issue of maturity, that, that there's different Greek words for, Paul said to the Corinthians, uh, I have to speak to you like your babies. And then he said, um, uh, I, I've spoken unto you little children, and then young men and women, and then fathers. See, and so, so there, there's like a progression of maturity. And, but when I, was, when I was growing my kids, um, for instance, when I, when I would, um, oh, I don't know, say, say I had to go somewhere, and I'd say to Daniel or David, uh, I'll be back, and they'd be scared that I was going to leave, you know, and I'd say, no, no, I'll be back, and then I would go, and then I would come back, and the more I went and came back and proved to them that I keep my promises, the more they trusted me, so then I could go away for longer periods of time, and then they wouldn't cry at the door because they'd be trusting me, so, but if like Daniel's 35 now, if every time I said goodbye to Daniel, he started crying, uh, I would say he's being immature, right? And so you would expect more out of somebody who's a little bit older. And this is why Paul talked to the Corinthians, and he said, you know, um, uh, he says, I, I would like to talk to you about some deeper stuff, but I can't because you're like babies. One of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos. He says, where's Jesus in all this? You guys are like babies, you have to have a milk bottle stuck into your mouth every time you turn around. Grow up. That's why I might come across a little harsh, so the next guy that comes in might be a father heart guy, and you can glean from that. But, but my thing is, we don't have time to sit around moping and groping about all the bad things that happened to us. We've got to realize we've been forgiven, and we've got to realize whatever happened to us, we've got to forgive people that have done it, and we're going to go on. I don't have time to mess around with the past. The past is, what do they say, the past is a mystery, or how does it say? The past is history, the future is a mystery, so live in the present. <laughs> so, so forget about the past, and let's go on uh, forever into maturity, even to the Hebrews. Remember, in the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer to the Hebrews said, I want to talk to you about this guy named Melchizedek, who's this really mysterious figure in the Old Testament, but I can't talk to you about Melchizedek because you guys are like babies. You know, so, so he wanted so badly for them to come to maturity but they were so much like babies. So if, if there's something, if I could just prophesy something to you, a, a one-liner, I can guarantee this, thus says the Lord. Anything you're going through right now, it might be that somebody just came up and said, God told me you're going to be the best worship leader since Daniel Lehman. Uh, and and uh, uh, it could be that somebody came up to you and, like somebody came up to me yesterday. I spoke in the... Uh, 
hope that person's not here. But um, I, I spoke in the um, staff meeting yesterday. And after the staff meeting, uh, a, a young lady came up to me and said, um, I really like what you had to say. I've been offended almost every time I've heard you speak, but today I really liked it. <laughs> so I went to my wife and I went, I offended this girl every time I've spoken. I wonder how many times she's heard me. And I felt terrible, but I didn't want to go into a big deal and say, no, when do, you know, and go into a whole pity party thing. But, you know, it was a wake-up call for me, and I got to, but at the same time, I got to handle that with maturity. I can't go eating worms and go, oh, I'm a terrible speaker. I think I'm going to quit. I think I'll go shoot some heroin or something. No, uh, I got I to gotta respond to everything with maturity. On the other hand, uh, one lady came up to me yesterday and said, I've never heard you speak before. That was really great. And I said, well, it all balances out. But which one? Am I going to get lifted up with pride because somebody really liked it? Or am I going to get all depressed because I offend somebody? You got to do your best and pray that it's blessed and let Jesus take care of the rest. Amen. So, so that's, that's uh, the issue of maturity. So my, my prophecy to you is everything you're going through right now, no matter what it is, let, let's say you were on your way to get married and some guy just dropped you. You just got a Dear Jane letter or a Dear John letter. And it, you're, you're just feeling terrible. I got I to prophesy to you. God is trying to get you to trust him. Everything that's going on in your life right now, God is trying to get you to trust him. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's all about faith. The just will live by faith. Now, a scripture we're going to get into later in a little devotional is going to be on Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And if you've ever read that story, you might remember this little phrase. Man shall not live by, so live by, in other words, you die if you don't have this thing that you're supposed to live by. Man shall not live by bread or food alone, but what? But by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. Now, obviously, that's spoken words, but it's also the 66 books of the Bible, and that's what we're going to connect on today. So, yes, let's move on to maturity, and, and let's, let's, let's go for faith. Sometimes it's going to be hard because the feelings aren't there, but that's when you believe. And imagine how I would feel as a dad if every time my kids didn't feel that I loved them, they would tell me that I, that I don't love me. I'd feel terrible, <clears throat> you know, but they're, they're mature enough even at a young age that even when I would spank them or discipline them or not let them do something, <clears throat> they still knew that I loved them and they still loved me, but they were still bummed. Their feelings did not follow. And um, I'm going to get to that in a second. I'll follow up on that. Let's get, let's get some other feedback from yesterday. Open book test. You can look at your notes. Yeah, I'm going to get into that too. The, here, here's going to be my, when I get to that, yeah, I got it up there so I won't forget it. Um, the issue, the issue <laughs> for missions, for everything, why we should have a university, why we should have missions, why we should tell people about Jesus, is we believe the gospel is true. Amen? That, that's the bottom line. Whether we feel it, whether they feel it, whether they feel it's unjust, and what about all the other religions, and what about all those that have never heard the gospel, and all that stuff, the bottom line is we believe that it's true. And, for <clears throat> and so... 
there is such a thing as absolute truth, and we can say, here it is, right here in the Bible, is absolute truth. But it's how we apply it that where it becomes relative, see? And uh, who was, one of you asked me a question yesterday, <clears throat> well, why are there so many translations? Well, that's a small one compared to why are there so many denominations? And why are there Christians, strong Christians, who were absolutely against going to war in Iraq and strong Christians who were absolutely for going to war in Iraq? Why are there very strong, committed Mennonite Christians who really refuse to go to war because they believe that the Sermon on the Mount forbids them to do that? You've got other people that look at the absolute truth of the Bible in a little bit different way. So you can't really say your view of the truth is the truth. So that's where, that's where it gets a little dicey because, um, I, mean, I mean, what about the Catholics and the Protestants in, in Ireland? Up until a few years ago, they were killing each other and bombing each other. Now, we know it was more political than it was religious, but what did the news people see? Catholics and Protestants fighting each other in the name of Jesus. And really, and we've got to be careful as, I'll speak as an American here, we've got to be careful as citizens of the United States that we don't think, well, God is on our side as, <clears throat> as Americans because we have committed some atrocities as well. You know, and I, I'm really against ISIS, make no bones about it, but we have done things like that. We had an American commander in, in the Vietnam War who lined up men, women, and children, and machine-gunned 250 people. It's what they call the My Lai Massacre. And that guy never got jail time, and he's living in South Carolina today. And atrocity, he got away with that. You know, and uh, so all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But, but we've got to be careful that we say, well, this is absolutely true. We could get into talking about how to reach Muslims. How many of you know there's different ways of reaching Muslims? And if you read a book on how to reach Muslims, well, I should say, if you read five books on how to reach Muslims, you can have five different approaches. Some people say, Allah is a demon, and you need to say that from the very beginning and tell them the truth. Others say, no, Allah is to them the one true God, and we have the one true God. He's the God of Abraham, so it's the same God but different viewpoints on the character of God. Others say Allah and Jehovah are absolutely the same God. So you got three different viewpoints, all by Christians who believe the Bible is absolute truth. But is our viewpoint, is the grid that we look through absolute? And uh, in general, you have, like, I'll try to be as middle of the road as I can here. In the American political system, you have what's called right-wing conservatives and left-wing liberals. And the, most of the church is on the side of the right wing. But in the left wing, they're the ones that have stood up for the poor. They're the ones that have stood up for not just calling abortion a crime. Why don't we go into the social structures that get 15-year-old girls down in the ghetto to have an abortion? Why don't we go after the root of the problem? No, the root of the problem is we've got to adopt the kids. How about the root of the problem being trying to work with the government to try to make sure we have less pregnancies so we don't have more abortions? So both of these are Christians. Both of them love God, but both of them have different approaches using the absolute truth of the Bible. And one side says, but you're looking at it wrong, but you're looking at it through your grid. 
and this person's looking at it through their grid. So it, it does get, it, it's not as clean cut as we would like it to be. Like most of my Republican right-wing friends just say, the truth is the truth. Yeah, well, what about? And then when you throw other things out there, then you know, it gets us all thinking. So that's why it's good to learn and to study so you can have an intelligent opinion about things. And also, if you're going to give your life to something, you better make sure it's based on truth. Because you wouldn't want to wake up when you're 75 years old and go, oops, <laughs> I guess I listened to the wrong preacher or something. You know? You've got to be convinced that where you're going is, um, is worth going. Now, by the grace of God, I've been an evangelist for almost 40 years, and I thank God that back in those days, I believed in a heaven, and I believed in a hell, and I believed in the cross, and I believed in the resurrection, and I still do. And so uh, that's what you've got to get your fundamentals down with regards to uh, uh, the absolute truth. But we'll, we'll try to deal with that a little bit later, because that's also big for, for worship. Anybody else? Okay, something that, was it Liam? Lee? Lynn. Lynn. Lynn, oh, that's easy. Uh, something that she said sparked something in me. Um, Lynn sparked something in me. And that is just, just to give you a little understanding of these terms when they come up. This might sound academic, but I think it might help you understand a little bit more about worship styles and how you can best... Um, serve when you go to worship in different places. In general, there's about five different kinds of Christians. They're what we call Pentecostals. Got another, uh, we got another marker. Um, is anybody, can anybody here tell me what, what they think a Pentecostal is? Free? The Holy Spirit, yeah. The Holy Spirit comes to mind. Now, originally, uh, on the day of Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell on the church and they began to speak in other tongues. They began to speak in other languages. Thank you. And uh, so... So they had a Pentecostal experience. In other words, at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, um, shook the place where they were sitting. There was a supernatural manifestation, and they all began to speak in tongues. Okay, now, hop over 2,000 years of church history. In the beginning of last century, in about 2000, I mean, uh, in 1904, 1906, there, now, Kevin might have, he should have dealt with this. I don't see his notes yet. But he probably talked about the Azusa Street Awakening. Okay, that's what was called the Pentecostal outpouring. Out of that came the Assemblies of God, which is where Lauren came from, the Foursquare Movement, which was Amy Semple McPherson, and from which my mentor Chuck Smith came from in, in my Calvary Chapel dealings. And uh, so those were the two big movements. But there's another one called the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. Has anybody ever heard of that before? Okay, that's another major Pentecostal denomination. The characteristics of Pentecostals is, of course, they believe in the Holy Spirit 
And, but their hallmark pretty much is they believe that if you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, you will speak in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, that means you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some of them are a little moderate on that, but that's how most of them see this. And so uh, they also believe in what we call a second work of grace. That is, when you accept Jesus into your heart, you're saved and the Spirit of God dwells in you. But you need to, after that, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and you will speak in tongues. And so this happened big time back in Azusa Street. I've seen it happen a thousand times. It's happened many times. It's happened in this classroom, I'm sure. <clears throat> it's happened all around the world where somebody lays hands on you or the Holy Spirit starts to move and you say, God, I'm open to whatever you have. And all of a sudden, these words start flowing out of you and you feel like you got baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, so there's what you call classical Pentecostals, and that is uh, Foursquare, Assembly of God, and many of our leaders in YWAM, the original founders of YWAM, Lauren and Darlene, for instance, both came out of Assembly of God backgrounds. They're both very strongly um, Pentecostal. Another thing about Pentecostals the good part is they really believe God can do anything anytime he wants, and they believe in miracles and speaking in tongues and everything. The negative part of Pentecostalism has been a, tend a tendency towards legalism. Because they believe that God really wants all of you, and he wants you to be filled with his spirit and live a holy life, because it was the Holy Spirit that came upon the disciples. So they're the ones, a lot of times, where... Uh, the girls couldn't show any skin on their, um, on their dresses at all. Uh, they would have to have their hair in a bun. They wouldn't be able to have long hair. Um, they couldn't wear makeup. Uh, this kind of stuff that came out of... Now, most of us can't even relate to that because you don't have to worry about that. But there were tons of women that got thrown out of churches if they wore makeup because God, God's not into makeup. So that's the upside and the downside. Something else happened uh, in the 1960s Moving into the 1970s, and two movements happened. Now, this is in the West. I can't speak for Korea on this or some of, some of the other countries. But in the West, and it spread into Europe. It was Norway. I, w I was in Sweden, and there was a Jesus movement in Sweden. Uh, <clears throat> there was a Jesus movement in, in Western Europe, uh, as well as a big time in California. But out of that came what's called the Charismatics or the... Um, Uh, charismatic movement or what we might call the Jesus movement. Jesus movement was mostly among young people like me and the charismatic movement was similar to the Pentecostal movement but it was a little bit more of a moderated Pentecostalism. In other words, you could lay your hands on somebody and you know, you'd be up there right, come on, come on, speak it out, speak it out. You know, you're trying to get them to speak in tongues but they don't. You say, well praise the Lord, by faith you asked for it, you got it. And I have personally, now I was filled with the Holy Spirit by myself out on a rock, rock jetty in uh, Santa Cruz, California, and I started speaking in tongues. But I'm not even sure that's when I got filled with the Holy Spirit. I know many people who have been filled with the Holy Spirit who never have spoken tongues. And I tend to be more of a charismatic because I don't see speaking in tongues as being the litmus test on whether or not you're a true spirit-filled believer. But this would be, most of YWAM leaders would be considered charismatic. 
Not too many of us are hardcore Pentecostals, although we tend to, we tend to lean toward that. Now, there's another movement going on today. It's what, now, this is my own opinion. I didn't get this from anybody. I would call it neo-Pentecostals. Neo-Pentecostals are new Pentecostals. This would be IHOP, Reading, um, Bethel, uh, where there's a strong emphasis on the prophetic, strong emphasis on, on the baptism in the Holy Spirit, but not as much emphasis on speaking in tongues as on charismatic worship and experiential worship, like to spend two or three hours in a prayer room. It's, it's kind of a new thing. Charismatics didn't do that very much. I mean, once in a while, the Holy Spirit would fall and you'd go for hours. Now, it's nothing to go into our prayer room and see people on their face seeking God, experiencing the Holy Spirit for hours at a time, which is great. Amen. I mean, we're not complaining. I think it's wonderful. But it's, you got to recognize that's one way of looking at it. So what I'm trying to establish for you this morning, when you go to different kinds of churches, you're going to go to churches that are looking through a certain grid. For instance, if you were to sing the song, He loves us, oh, how he loves us, oh, and you sing that refrain, and you sing that again and again and again. In my denomination, which is a mildly charismatic denomination, they would say, why are they saying the same thing over and over again? Why don't they get on? Why don't they have some content? And if you went to them and said, why don't you have content, they would say, well, do you have any content when you're speaking in tongues? There's no content there. It's just you're speaking in another language by faith, building yourself up. So it doesn't always have to engage the brain. It doesn't always have to engage the mind. There is a spiritual experience that you have as a spirit-filled believer, in my opinion, whether or not you speak in tongues or even whether or not you can go to the prayer room for three hours at a time. So what I'm saying is there are different grids through which we look. My, uh, my son's father-in-law is a good old Baptist. And that guy, if he sings more than three hymns on a Sunday morning, he is bored to death. And he wants to get out and do something. He wants to get out and drive the truck for the kids to go to the youth camp. He wants to go out and make the fire. And he wants to serve. But to, what do you mean the presence of God? I mean, you know, it's right there in the Bible. And he, he would be what you might call a... Uh, Evangelical. Now, an evangelical would be somebody like Billy Graham, Charles Swindoll, uh, Charles Stanley, Andy Stanley. Um, I think even Francis Chan wouldn't call himself a Pentecostal. So there's a lot of them trying to be on this kind of medium road between charismatic Pentecostal and evangelical, and this would be fundamental. A fundamentalist is a person who doesn't have any fun, damns everybody else, and is, and is kind of mental. <laughs> Forgive me for the sarcasm, especially if you come from the Deep South. But, um, but a fundamentalist is a person that says, I believe that the Bible's the word of God. Even if it would say that Jonah swallowed the whale, I'd believe it. Hallelujah. Glory to God. You know? So the extreme... Now, from your perfect position as a perfect, perfectly balanced school and a perfectly balanced mission organization, can you see how you can go to extremes with... You ever hear, 
if you're not an American, you probably haven't heard of these guys. But there's a, there's a group called the Westboro Baptist Church. And they, with all due respect, are wackos. But they are the extreme of what a fundamentalist understanding has. See? Because you can be any of these and have a fundamentalist spirit. You know? And that's very dangerous. We're, this, is, this is basically, if you're going to get into spooky spiritual warfare terms, this is what runs Islam. It's a fundamentalist Islam. This is the way it was in the 6th century with Muhammad, 7th century with Muhammad. And, this is, and it's got to be Arabic and it's got to be this and you've got to have Jews. And they just can't let go of that. And yet in the, in the Bible you have very clearly where Paul the Apostle came in into the Corinthian church and there's this moderating influence where Paul... Some of our brothers and sisters are eating meat that's offered to the devil. And then the other ones come in and say, ah, Paul, they're just a bunch of fundamentalists. What do I care? I'll eat meat offered to the devil himself. I don't care. There's no, you know, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I don't care who it was offered to. I can eat meat and thank God for it. No problem. I'm free. So, so Paul came in and said, now hang on, guys. You guys that have a strong conscience need to give a break to the guys who have a weak conscience. And those of you with a weak conscience should not judge those that can eat meat offered to idols. But those of you that can eat meat offered to idols, and if it doesn't bother your conscience, uh, you shouldn't uh, despise those who can't. All of us have our different kuleana. All of us have our different understanding. So let's Now, you don't find that in Islam because Islam is run by a hardcore fundamentalist and understanding. But... What do the fundamentalists have to offer us? They offer us the Bible is the word of God, and we need to stick to the fundamentals of the faith. So I'm, I'm doing a little bit of knocking here, but people like in the American scene, Jerry Falwell and uh, others who have been hardcore fundamentalists, they're not so much into the Holy Spirit, but they are into truth. Yes? Can you explain? Good, good. All right, in general, yeah, evangelicals are, like we are evangelicals. And the day we, an evangelical Christian has three characteristics. Number one, we believe the Bible's God's word. Yeah, I would say, if you want to have a definition, a fundamentalist is an extreme evangelical. And a Pentecostal is an extreme charismatic. See what I mean? So you're you're pushing the, and here's where you get to the absolute truth. Is it absolutely true that you have to speak in tongues to prove you've got the Holy Spirit? I I don't think so. But you may, because and and if you do, you would be a Pentecostal. And I wouldn't knock you on that. I, I, I differ with you on an interpretation of certain scripture. But here's where we have to have humility. And what we need to be, and this this is where, uh, getting back to Lauren's question here, this is where we have to choose what kind of a Christian are we going to be. So an evangelical Christian has three characteristics. We believe that Jesus is the only son of God and the only way to God. We believe, number two, that he rose from the dead. And we believe that the Bible is the word of God and that we should share it with others. 
That's what it means to be evangelical. The evangel, evangel, the word evangel means uh, good news. So we believe in the good news. Now, um, I need the Koreans to help me here. My understanding of the Korean church, as opposed to what a lot of people think about Korea from the outside, most of us have heard about Pastor Cho, and most of us have heard about his big church. Pastor Cho is a Pentecostal, and he is a um, uh, assembly. Of, he used to be Assembly of God. I'm not sure if he still is. But most, tell me if I'm wrong, but most Koreans that I know come from Presbyterian backgrounds. Is that right? Young Nak Presbyterian, Kwang Lim Methodist Church. Well, that's a Methodist church. But uh, a lot of these are, a lot of the Koreans are Presbyterians. Is that right? Presbyterians tend to be a tad bit more what we might call following John Calvin, Calvinistic. But bec- and they fit really good in YWAM, which is amazing. And you know one of the reasons, if I may say this, I think it's because the Koreans are humble. And they don't fight about it. But they do, believe in the, they do believe in the sovereignty of God more than some of us Pentecostals or, charis, or, or Charismatics. Now, now, when you think about uh, doctrine and how we understand things, um, um, getting back to uh, yeah, the, 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 the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, most Pentecostals, including YWAM, Coming from the force, coming from Assembly of God, and a lot of us that came from, uh, like with me, I, I came in the Jesus movement. So I came in in kind of a neo-charismatic renewal movement within the church. But um, we tend, most Pentecostals tend towards a little bit of what we would call Wesleyanism or what we might call Arminianism. Now I don't want to confuse you. I'm just going to give a couple of big words and then I'll leave it go. Back in the days of the Protestant Reformation, when the pr- Protestants were protesting against the Roman Catholic Church. Remember Martin Luther? Okay. So Luther and Calvin and a Swiss guy named Zwingli all came up and they believed very strongly in the sovereignty of God. That taken to an extreme gets into extreme predestination. Okay, and in my opinion, we don't want to go there. But there's certainly nothing wrong with believing that God is sovereign. Amen? How many of you ever heard this term, God is in control? That's a tricky... If you were to say to me, is God in control? I'd say, well, yes and no. He's not in total control because if he was in total control, I wouldn't have a free will. But God in his loving kindness has given us all freedom of choice, which means he's ultimately in control... But he didn't pre-program Hitler to have the Holocaust. He didn't. I've had. I've heard the most horrendous counsel. A young girl gets raped when she's 15, and somebody says, "Well, that's just God's way of uh, growing you up." No, the devil got somebody to do that. And I heard a, a preacher on the radio after 9/11. He said, "Let's don't go trying to get God out of the hole on this one. I mean, uh, you can blame us on the devil, but God ultimately did it to judge America." And you're going, "What if your sister was in the trade center? What if your brother was there? You know, how can you talk so insanely?" So, somewhere I think in the middle, if there is such a thing as a middle, we believe that God is sovereign and that we are f- free to make choices. But even that has to be challenged because um, 
Let, let's say uh, Grace and I are good friends here, but I say something during the break time that totally offends her. And um, it's just me and her, and I say something about her ethnicity or something, I say some crack. And she comes up and says, Danny, I'm sorry if that really offended me, what you said. Uh, I just want to let you know I, I, I'm not happy with you right now. So I go, well, you've got to grow up. Or and I give her some flippant remark, and she goes away bummed out. So what she does is she, she goes and gets on her knees, and she says, Father, Danny was mean to me yesterday, and then I tried to talk to him about it like you told me to in Matthew 18, and he rejected me. I just pray that you'd speak to him. So the next morning, I get, let's say that happens on Wednesday afternoon. On Thursday morning, I get up and have a quiet time, and the Holy Spirit nails me on how I responded to her. And I go back to her and I say, hey, Grace, remember what the original thing that I said? It was stupid. It was dumb. It was a sin. And I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me? And the way I responded to you when you came to me in humility to tell me about it, that was sin. I confess it. I'm really sorry. Would you forgive me? And she goes, sure, Danny. And she forgives me. Now, what actually transpired? From all we can tell was in time, you have a timeline, so on Tuesday morning, I offended her. On Tuesday afternoon, she confronted me. I rejected her confrontation. And then on Thursday morning, God spoke to me, and Thursday afternoon, we were reconciled. That happened in space and in time. Now, what we would say was God was up in heaven, and he sees me doing this unkind thing to her, and he goes, that layman, he just can't control his mouth. And then, um, well, maybe she'll listen. So then she comes. Now, could God control me and speak to me at that time? Yeah, he could have, but he didn't apparently. Or if he does, he, I was too proud to listen. So she tells me the truth, but because I have a hard heart and because I'm proud, it doesn't get through. I got a hard shell on my heart. But, but I do love the Lord. So the next day I get on my knees and I pray and say, Lord, good morning. And the Lord goes, bang convicts me so like a, I make a beeline to her the next day and I make things right so that's what we call God dwelling in sequential time with us that 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 God saw that happening he could have intervened he didn't but he chose to do it the other way now how many of you know God gets more now this is my opinion God gets more glory when as a result of what we have learned as a disciple, a disciple's a learner, and I know that humility and brokenness are high values with God. And when God speaks to me, I respond of my free will and my brokenness and I ask her forgiveness. How many of you know God might get a tad bit more glory from that than if he programmed me to do it? See, and this is where I think the mystery of predestination and all that comes in. I can't explain all that, but I know that what makes God greater when he can woo us by his love and show us his grace, and, it, and the Bible says it's the goodness of God that draws us to repentance. I was talking to a Muslim imam on a plane one time. I was trying to explain this to him. I said, you know, you say that God is great, Allah Akbar. You say that God is great. You know what? We believe God is great too. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Uh, so you believe God's great, and I believe God's great. But the difference between you and me is I believe it's not the greatness of God that saves us. It's the goodness of God. 
So then I lean into God's character. And I say, I know you believe that God controls everything because Allah Akbar, whatever Allah wills, is what you believe. What I believe is, yes, Allah has a will or God has a will, but he gives us his truth, stands back, gives us his word and says, obey me. And he gets glory because of changed hearts who were changed by his grace and his mercy and serve him out of their own free will as opposed to a God who triggers your willer and changes your free will and does whatever he wants to do. To me, that's a God more worthy of worship because you have a God who responds to us, who loves us, but times go by when he chooses not to do anything. And that's what we call the sovereignty of God. And then there will be things that happen, terrible things that happen to Christians where you just got to go, yeah, God could have intervened. Like my friend Steve I was telling you about yesterday, God could have stopped the drunk driver. He could have given him a flat tire. He could have had his parents take the keys to the truck. God could have done anything, but he didn't. He knew he could do the math from when the kid was coming around the bend to when his wife was taking the walk with the little girl. He could have, he could have caused a short in the oven where the turkey was so that she couldn't go on the walk. He could have done tons of things, but he didn't. And that's when you like Job and you say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I'll trust him either way. It is well with my soul, even though a terrible thing happened. See, so it might sound like I'm knocking Islam here. I kind of am because I think they have the wrong understanding of the character of God. That we have this God who loves us, but he's not going to just either for good or for evil control us. Because he wants us to be conformed to the image of Christ And he wants us to, of our own free will, worship him and that way grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. I think she had her hand up first, and then I'll go back to you. Yeah. And likewise, when Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer and we say, Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Apparently, it's not being done on earth as it's being done in heaven. So why even pray that prayer? So I, I agree with you. Now, if you come from a strong Calvinist background, I'm not going to knock you. Some of our greatest revivals have happened from Calvinist backgrounds. So I'm, I don't want to get into any talking stink about anybody. I'm just trying to give you your options to believe. And a lot of it will come, getting back to this, if you were raised in a Pentecostal church, you would say, well, of course, Danny, you've got to speak in tongues. It's right there in the Bible. You know, and, and that, that might be the way you look at it, and that's fine. See, these are the kind of things we don't fight about in YWAM unless they're these things. If you say Jesus isn't really the Son of God, or he's really not the only way, or the Bible's full of errors, then you've got problems. Because if the Bible's full of errors, you can pick and choose which error you're not going to believe. See? You had your hand up back here? You say what? I'll give you my short answer. That to do it justice would take two hours. If you go to Romans 9, you'll see that Romans 9 explains what happened back in Exodus. And if you look at Romans 9, it says that, yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. If you go back to the book of Exodus, 
it mentions God hardening Pharaoh's heart, I think, 11 times. I think four of those times, it says, I will harden his heart. On another four times, it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then a couple of times, it says, and God hardened his heart. So if you, and, and the word hardened is an unfortunate uh, English word for that. The Greek, the Hebrew word, and there's a couple of Hebrew words in that text. It basically means Pharaoh made the choice and Moses kept going to him. And God was sending Moses each time and each plague. And it says, and because right in the beginning it says, I will harden his heart so that he will let my people go. And so he hardens his heart and then finally God hardens his heart and strengthens him in his resolve. In other words, he strengthened his own free will. So did God harden Pharaoh's heart? No, he strengthened Pharaoh's heart of a Pharaoh who already chose against the children of Israel by um, refusing to let him go. Then on the last plague, it says, you know, when the angel of death came over, yeah, God hardened his heart. And, um, uh, and then, then they let the people go. If you go to Romans 9, it says, uh, Even for this purpose have I raised up Pharaoh, that I might show my power in all the earth. So I'm not saying God wasn't involved. He was. But it wasn't like God arbitrarily is playing games up there and says, Well, I think I'll do this, and I think I'll do that, and I'll harden him to do this. He was, he was working along with our free will. If you go to Romans chapter 1, there's an interesting progression where it says, um, he's talking about this group of sinners, and it says, and they, um, they gave themselves up to uncleanness and sexual lust and so on and so forth and so on. And, then, and they worshiped and served the creation more than the creator. Then there's another wave, and it says, and they gave themselves up to blah, 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 and here's when homosexuality comes in. And, on it. and, then, and, then, it's, and then in the third wave, it says in verse 28, so God gave them over to their own lusts. So the first two, they did it, they did it, and then God says, I'll give you over. If that's what you want, you got it. Now, another little piece of this. Now, this is personal opinion here. Uh, if you talk to a good Calvinist scholar, he would disagree. But um, predestination, or another word for this is election. Uh, the cho God's choosing of people. So one way of looking at it is God says, uh, uh, I'll choose you, uh, I'll choose you, uh, you're going to go to hell. Uh, I'll choose you, I'll choose you. And you say, well, 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 why did you choose him and not me? Who are you to ask me? You're the clay and I'm the potter. Shut up, you don't have a, anything to say about that. That's the way some people interpret Romans 9. If you look at the verses on election or predestination, uh, for instance, in Romans 8, it says, All things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Hmm. So apparently his foreknowledge has something to do with his predestination. But even that... When it says he predestined, it doesn't say he predestined people to heaven and hell. It says he predestined saved people to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
Just look at it in Romans 9. Predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. In Ephesians, which is the one other time it's mentioned, it's mentioned twice in Ephesians 1, it says, um, He has chosen us in Him before... Listen to this. You, all, you look at that and you read it and it says, He has chosen us in Him. So that means He chose Lynn. God just arbitrarily chose Lynn. He didn't choose her friends, but He chose her. Why? You, who are you? You don't say nothing. I'm the clay. I'm the potter. You're the clay. You know, I, I chose and none of your business. Okay, okay. Sorry for asking. You know, but if we ask and say, no, it says, Paul, now, this is just a different grid. We look at it as individual Westerners, and we say, God has chosen us in Christ. Oh, God chose Danny Lehman. But there's just, just switch your grid. Put on a different pair of glasses and look at the corporate understanding. Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to the Ephesians, plural. He's writing to the church of Ephesus. And he's saying, we have been chosen in him. Now, what does that mean, in him? The word in Christ and in him is mentioned about six times in that one paragraph. What does it mean to be in him? Well, this is just one way of looking at it, but to me it solves the dilemma. And that is that we are in Christ. Now, how did we get in Christ? We believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. How did we believe? Did God predestine it? Did he choose it? Did he influence? Well, that's up for grabs. You can, but we're in him. And we are chosen because we are in him because he is the chosen one. So we have entered into his corporate chosenness because it is the church of Ephesus. And most of the Bible was written to groups of people, not to individuals. See? When we see a verse like, um, we are God's work of art, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. I have always interpreted that to be, God chose Danny Lehman. You know, it's kind of like the old Saturday Night Live skit. I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and by golly, God loves me. <laughs> there is something good about me. And, and, uh, and God chose me and and I've, I've even preached this myself. God is just doing this work of art on this easel and this, this palette and this paintbrushes. And he's working this wonderful work of art called David Jackson. I think I'll give him a big frizzy hairdo and I think I'll do this and I think I'll do that. And I think I'll give him a, a, a musical gift. And I'm, and, and oh, that just makes me feel so good. I'm so happy. Oh, keep it coming, keep it coming. That's one way of looking at it, but take off your glasses. Take off your individualistic glasses and put on your corporate glasses, it doesn't say God chose the Ephesian guy named David Jackson. It says he chose the Ephesians to be his work of art. So maybe he's just saying, you Ephesians have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Why? So that you would be holy and without blame before him in love. Look it up right there in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. And then you get to chapter 2, and you say God has chosen us to be his work of art. And he's doing this corporate, beautiful thing with us as a group of people. This is why the teaching on Christian community and koinonia and loving one another is so important. Yes, we have an individual relationship with Christ, but it's also we have a corporate understanding. There were prophecies to the nation of Israel. There were prophecies against, in the book of Isaiah, against the nation of, um, 
Edom and, and Egypt and so forth and so on. So a lot of the Bible was written to groups of people. And what we have done is I think, humble opinion, who am I to disagree with the great John Calvin? But I think we have flopped on. You get a system. And, and if there's anything I can say about having a passion for the word, when you get a passion for the word, it doesn't matter who's in the front. It can be Mr. Bible Scholar par excellence. And you have the free will to say, well, I'm going to be a good Berean, and I'm going to check it out with what does the Bible actually say? See? Like I was talking to you about those verses. Is this getting too deep for you guys? I don't want to bury you with this stuff. I'm just trying to please ask questions if you're not getting what I'm saying. Okay, please. I uh, sometimes jump to too many head, head conclusions here. But um, um, getting back to the Protestant Reformation, it is obvious to most people that the Catholics had gone off the rails. Uh, they were, there was sin in the papacy. There was cold-blooded murder among popes and cardinals. I mean, it was a mess. And so there were true Christians in the Catholic Church at that time, but it wasn't the dominant force. The dominant force was a political marriage of the church and the state, started with Charlemagne in 800 A.D. and went on through to the Reformation. And the official doctrine is we're saved by being a part of the church and we're saved by grace plus works. So Martin Luther said that's not what Romans says and that's not what Galatians says and that's not what Ephesians says. So they preached really strong of something we call justification. Anybody know what that means? Justification means because Jesus died on the cross, he declares you to be righteous. Like, what's your name? Elena, she's feeling really guilty about something that she did, and she's going, God, and, and then she accepts Christ, and she says, yeah, but I'm still guilty. No, you're not. You have been declared righteous. Well, yeah, but I, I, I can't be, I know you can't be righteous. That's why I died on the cross, so I can declare you righteous. And the picture that has been given, now, does that mean she's actually sinless? No, but it means she's been declared to be righteous in the courtroom of heaven. But, and here's when you get into your Bible digging here and you go, now, wait a minute. Is it only a courtroom? No, it's also a family because God's a father. And we can tell her in good news, you know, you ran away like the prodigal son and you were out there messing up and you came back feeling all guilty and you have been reconciled to the father. So the father runs down the driveway and you give this wonderful picture of reconciliation. She says, you mean I'm justified in the courtroom of heaven, and I'm forgiven in the family of God? That's not all. You were a slave to sin, just like the children of Israel were a slave to Egypt. You were a slave to sin, just like the slave markets in the early Bible times. And you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You mean I'm, I'm, I'm redeemed? You're forgiven. Yeah. Yeah, but, but what about the judgment of God on my sins? I got more good news for you. The atoning sacrifice. You know all that blood in the Old Testament? Yeah. Okay. Well, that blood, the blood of bulls and of goats and of innocent lambs and the screaming and the bleeding of the lambs and the turtle doves with their heads cut off and all the ugly blood and it's all flies are flying around the caked up blood all over the priest's garments and blood is everywhere. What an ugly thing. Foreshadowing all that being dumped on Jesus Christ on the cross. And that blood 
was the atoning sacrifice to forgive you for all your sins. And not only that, the icing on the cake in the book of Colossians, it says that Christ, when he died on the cross, disarmed and broke the powers of Satan that he had over our lives and made a public show of them. What a beautiful, wonderful cross we, we worship. and we, This is what it's all about. This is why the communion... Man, if I, had, if I was the Pope of YWAM, I would do something about... <laughs> if we could just honor... We could take communion more seriously. I've been in some communion services that were like, like a ping pong match, you know, like throw the bread across the... No. We're, we're, we're giving the Eucharist, the thanksgiving of God, because I was, I was guilty in the courtroom of heaven, and I'm justified. I was a slave to sin, but I'm redeemed. I was separated from the Father with no relationship to God, and I'm reconciled to God. I was guilty of sin, and I couldn't understand all that blood, or why do we have to die? You have to die because of sin, but you have eternal life because of the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. We're a very bloody religion, and let's don't forget it. Yeah, how many people go, I don't like all that blood. Well, if you don't like all that blood, then what, why did Jesus come? He came to shed his precious blood. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And when a sinner is plunged beneath that flood, he loses all his guilty stains. Isn't that a beautiful? That's a hymn that I think we should sing more. But, but, the, but the, what will draw you into worship is when you're just going, I just can't, I can't, stop, Lord, I can't handle it. I can't handle your goodness. It's too much. Danny, come on now. You've got to believe you're reconciled to me just as if you never sinned. You're justified. You're redeemed. you got, you got it all, man, and you hear you, you. But I don't deserve it. Oh, what can I do but worship you? How can I go live a life of sin when he's done so much for me? I have been captured by his grace. I have been won over by his great love. And the closest we can get to this in human experience is a boy and a girl relationship. Oh, man, my, my girlfriend is just awesome, man. I mean, she's got these blue eyes, and she's got this, man, she's, and then, you know, it's like, um, let me give you an illustration. I don't know, I can't remember if I got this from John Piper or from C.S. Lewis, but I think it was the two together. But have you ever heard anybody say something like this? Uh, 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 I'm playing the devil's advocate here. The, 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 uh, the non-Christian comes and says, Lauren, you want me to worship this God? He's an ego, he's a, he's a egomaniac. He, he does all this stuff, and then he says, worship me, praise me, thank me, offer sacrifices to me, do it all for me, glorify me. He's full of more pride than the devil himself. God is just on some massive ego trip, and he tells you to worship him, and you're so stupid you fell for it. I don't believe in that God. That's stupid. If, I, if there was a God, he wouldn't be an egomaniac like that. No, but from a non-Christian grid, can you see how somebody would say that? Can you understand? Okay. So here's what C.S. Lewis said. Or John Piper, I forget. Let's say, now, do we have any rabid sports fans in this classroom? A, a, a uh, rabid, is a, a real fervent, does anybody here have a favorite team? Basketball, football, soccer, whatever. The All Blacks, okay. Uh, that's fair enough. Okay, we'll go. With, does everybody know how what the All Blacks mean to New Zealand? 
Right? They are the creme de la creme. If they get beat, the whole country goes into a shutdown and starts crying for a couple of days. I mean, nobody can beat the All Blacks. This was in, in the movie Invictus, when the South Africans beat the All Blacks. I mean, that was major for South Africa, and it was a major humiliation for the All Blacks. But let's say Grace is on her way into the... Is there such a thing as a world championship of rugby? Okay, the World Cup. So let's... She won. Okay, good. I got the right girl here. All right, here we go. So, so uh, let's say she goes to the championship game. And uh, she's about to come into the door, and, and one of the, the um, officers of the stadium says, Oh, good. Uh, obviously, with, with your uh, T-shirt and everything, you've you got an all-blacks hat. You know, you're, all, you're really an all-blacks fan. Uh, I've got here a check for $500 made out to Grace, you know, and uh, I will give that to you if you can keep your mouth shut the whole game. All you got to do to get this $500 is just not to say anything. You cannot say, let's go all blacks. You cannot say, let's get the bad guys all blacks. You, you got to keep your mouth shut. You can watch the game, but you can't say anything. And she's saying, man, I owe exactly $500 on my SOW tr- uh, tuition. Uh, I really need that money. You got a deal. So she goes into the stadium, and um, uh, the, 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 the game goes back and forth, back and forth, and let's say they're playing South Africa. And uh, they're going back and forth and fighting in the game. And, and she's, she knows she can't say anything because she'll lose the 500 bucks. And she's got video cameras uh, trained on her face, so they'll be able to bust her if she says anything. So they get down to, now it's on a time clock, right? So the time is running out on the game, and let's say the All Blacks are behind, and she's just, but she just can't say anything because, and then it gets down to where, uh, what's the guy's name, Jonah or uh, the, Jonah, yeah, let's say he's got the ball, and he's running, and there's only five seconds left, and he's running towards the goal line, and he's, and, and he busts across the goal line with no seconds left on the clock. And the All Blacks win in the last couple of seconds. And she goes, forget it. I love the All Blacks. Yes. And she just loses it and begins to yell and scream and jump up and down. And she just loves her team because her team is worthy of her worship, of her praise. That's just the way God made her. He made us in the image of God so that when we see... See, we look in the mirror and sometimes we look in the mirror and see good stuff. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I'm not, I'm not, you know, a lot of us look in there, oh, look at these zits and these wrinkles. And all, and a lot of us, but, but a lot of us, when we do something good and somebody comes up and says, thank you for... I really appreciate that. We go, well, I know glory go to God, but I did something. Yeah, praise the Lord. And we, we see that but when we get a revelation of God, we see it magnified a couple of million times. You know what? Um, now, what actually happened? And um, now, here's where you get to C.S. Lewis. I think that one was from Piper. But C.S. Lewis said, when a young man falls in love with a young woman, 
it might not be as much as it used to be back in the days of courting and you know the more official type thing. It's it's gotten a little muddled up nowadays. But in, in the good days of European courting and so forth, you would court the young lady, you would treat her really nice, you would take her out to a nice meal, you would you would do some chivalry by holding her chair, you would open up the door of the car and let her in. These were all things in order to honor and to praise your beloved because that's just the way you were made. You were made to be able to love someone else and that's why you have this, this is a, you have this non, uh, be the word, um, tactile, tactile means feeling. You, you can't feel it. When Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, was debating John Lennox on the existence of God, you know, Dawkins is just kind of a childish debater, but he started calling Christians names and everything. And, uh, but Lennox is just taking him and he says, how about your wife, uh, Richard? Do you love your wife? He goes, yeah. He said, you just said everything can be explained by chemicals in a test tube. How can you explain your love for your wife in a test tube? And, and you could see Dawkins was on his heels. He didn't know how to respond to that. Because Richard Dawkins, the great atheist, was made in the image of God as well. And he's got stuff from God in him. And he actually has a link on his website to send money, this is back when I read this, to the earthquake victims in Haiti. And if I ever had a chance to ride around Oxford uh, on a bicycle with Richard and sit him down on a cup of tea, I would say, Richard, thank you for helping the poor people in, in, um, in Haiti. Uh, on behalf of the poor, I want to thank you for that. But I got to remind you that you hijacked our worldview to do it because you don't have a logical reason to help the people in Haiti because it's all just a bunch of chance and a bunch of luck. But if you're made in the image of God, which you are, Richard, there's something in you that wants to help people that are in need. Thank you for that. But would you please admit you got that from us, from our worldview? Your worldview wouldn't give a rip about the people in Haiti. But you know what, Richard? You don't even, you're not even consistent with your own worldview because you're made in the image of God. Give it up, boy. Give your life to Christ. Realize that's why you were created. So, so what, what, um, what both John Piper and C.S. Lewis are trying to say is that it is just natural when you see true greatness to worship that greatness. In other words, and God has every right to say this, God can be up in heaven saying, worship me and praise me just because that's the way it is. <laughs> I am God and I am not. You wouldn't even be here to complain about me if it wasn't for my grace. I have created you. I have redeemed you. I've given you this wonderful creation. I've given you the gift of free will. I've given you significance in your relationships with others. I've given you the gift of sex. I could have said there's a button on your shoulder that you can push and have a baby, but I've decided to give you this wonderful physical tactile feeling, this wonderful gift of sex, and I've thrown that in. I gave you food to be able to eat, but I didn't cause you to eat just like you're an animal eating grass. I gave you taste buds so that you could have appreciate that and this is all as a result of his common grace that he gave to the whole universe but it's also a result of his saving grace and his redeeming grace so that we fall on our faces as a worship leader and say amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch but not only did he save a wretch like me he created a person like me and this is what drives us to worship because we are in awe of this incredible God so say back to your 
non-Christian friend who says God's an egomaniac and say, well, I can understand why you would think he's saying that, but this is the way I look at it. And, and again, this is my evangelist side coming out. This is why I want to encourage you. Spend time with non-believers. Answer their questions. Discuss them. Most non- the problem is most non-Christians don't have the time to talk about God, and we don't have the time to talk about God either. We go out on these short little outreaches for a couple of months, or we go out on a street outreach for a couple of hours, and then we don't go out for another month. But to engage non-believers, and, and, and I, your generation is very relationally oriented, and I would say champion that, because your generation of non-believers is relationally oriented as well. And um, I would encourage you, spend time with non-believers. Try to engage them, and try to, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, be ready always to give an answer to those who ask you about the reason that lies within you. Now, th- this is an over-caricature here, but some fundamentalists, we lovingly call them fighting fundies, some, <laughs> some fundamentalists will look a non-Christian straight in the eye, and the non-Christian will say, do you believe in talking snakes? And do you believe that God created the world in six literal days? And, and asking the kind of questions people ask. And the fundamentalists would go, I believe it. God said it. That settles it. I don't. Well, what about the scientific evidence that has come from Stanford and from Oxford and from Cambridge and from the greatest minds in the world about science? I don't care what the scientist said. The Bible says it. And, and it comes across as an empty, arrogant, um, unintelligent response. And the Bible says that we are to be ready to give an answer or a adequate defense for the gospel. Now, that's not particularly worship, but it does have to do with evangelism, that we can give reasons for faith. See? Now, this is where the evangelicals have done a great job. I just did a conference about a month ago with a guy named Lee Strobel. Has anybody ever heard of Lee Strobel? Okay, Lee Strobel um, wrote a book. He was an atheist. He was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and he covered legal murder cases. His wife became a Christian and witnessed to him for a year, and he thought it was just a bunch of hogwash, and he was an evolutionist, a secularist, and just believes everything's here by chance. We can't... Not only does truth not exist, we couldn't know it if it did exist. So he was totally an atheist. Series of events happened in his life. He got converted. He went to Bill Hybel's church, and he took his legal investigative... He was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune paper. He took that expertise and applied it to the gospel. And he went around and he interviewed experts on three questions. Number one, is there evidence outside of the Bible that Jesus is the Son of God? Is there evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Can you give me a rational, reasonable explanation that Jesus rose from the dead outside of, well, the Bible says it and I believe it. You got something besides that. Because my thinking friends are not going to go for that kind of stuff. And number three, is the Bible the Word of God? Is there evidence that the Bible is God's Word? And he wrote a best-selling book called The Case for Christ. 
Matter of fact, I got a case of his books at my house. I'll try to bring them tomorrow, and you can have one if you'd like. It's a lot of reading, but it, it gives you reasonable answers for faith. So, and forgive me if I was kind of down on these two, what I would consider extremes. I think in general, it's safe to believe God can do anything, anytime he wants by the power of the Holy Spirit, including speaking in tongues if he wants to do that. But we've got to be rooted and grounded in the Bible as the word of God, but maybe not to a nasty fundamentalist attitude. You know what I mean? And we have displayed, not lately, not lately, but we in the church, and I think most of you would agree with me, we in the church have not been very Christ-like to the gay community. Would you, would you agree with me on that? And I don't care what, what your stance should be, <laughs> you know, that if you're going to believe the Bible, you're going to have to believe the Bible's a tad bit negative on homosexuality. But God loves those people. And how can we... Uh, Express the love of God towards these people. And not in an attitude of, uh, the Bible says you're a sodomite and all that. No, how about, why don't, why don't we sit down and talk about this? Okay, well, you, you, you Christians do this, this, and that. You know what? You're right. I, I'm really sorry we do that. I, they call me these names over TV evangelists. Yeah, I, I'm embarrassed by that. I'm really sorry. Could we just talk about the issue? And then reason with them a little bit. Well, you know, as a heterosexual, I can't go out and have sex either. I'm, I'm, I'm just as sinful as you are because, I, you know, and, and the Bible doesn't isolate homosexuality as the big bugaboo sin. It's in, with the, it's in with a list of a bunch of other sins, including covetousness, greed, kidnapping, sex trafficking, right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's listed along with that. So uh, maybe if we engaged our gay friends a little more and had time with them, and I've done this on a few occasions. I had a guy one time... It broke my heart. I befriended him. In fact, he heard me preaching on the street. And he came up and he said, uh, um, yeah, you probably wouldn't want to talk to me because I'm gay. I said, no, I'd love to talk to you. And so we ended up developing this relationship. He went to church with me. We went to, gosh, we, went, we, we had McDonald's a bunch of times together. We had a lot of time together. And we, we went through the whole spectrum of the whole deal, whether you're born that way or not. And I, I just said, I don't know whether you're born that way or not. I don't think the evidence is conclusive either way. But I, because I, I, he said, Nanny, I don't care what you believe. As long as I've been alive, I've been attracted to guys. Now, you can say I was born that way or I'm a sinner. I, I'm not saying anything. Tell me more about that. So he would say it to me. And I said, well, I know you got these inclinations, and I have inclinations toward girls. I said, but I got saved when I was 21, and I didn't get married till I was 26. And I stayed true blue I did not have, I, I was, a, you know, I, I messed around before I got saved. But during those five years, I, I was sexual cold turkey. I didn't do nothing. And I said, if I can do it for five years, why can't you do it for five years or longer? And he said, well, you just don't understand the, 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 the pull. And I, I said, yeah, you're right, I don't, because I've never had that understanding. But that was me trying my best to build a bridge to the guy. And I think if we had more Christians building more bridges to people, not compromising truth, but loving them and spending time with them and trying to give them reasons, and those reasons come from the Bible. If we can just learn how to understand what the Bible is saying and then communicate it in a spirit that is Christ-like and loving and kind and learns how to listen to people. If you want to read an interesting book on this subject, 
by the, he's the head of the um, Gay Christian Coalition. There is a group out there of Christians who have just decided to give up the fight, and they've said, I'm a gay Christian. And this guy's book, 80% of the book, it was not written in a nasty spirit. I got it from Jim Walker down at the ships. And, um, and the guy just, he just talks about his struggle with the whole issue of his own sexuality. And uh, um, he fought and fought and fought until he got, I think he was like a sophomore in college. And he just gave up the fight and he jumped the fence. And now he's a gay Christian. But he is speaking to some of the issues that if we don't get more understanding, we, we're just not going to have that kind of compassion that we need. Let me say one more thing before the break. This is not necessarily about the gay issue, but if it's about any issue. When it talks about faith and works, my pastor just gave this illustration last week, so it's, it was great. He said there's a difference between sympathy and compassion. You'll notice whenever Jesus, wherever it says that Jesus had compassion on people, he, um, he did something to help them. The sheep were scattered abroad uh, as sheep not having a shepherd, and Jesus had compassion on them, so he said, let's send workers into the harvest field. So he, my pastor gave this illustration. He said, let's say you're, you're jogging through a, a field somewhere, and you hear somebody cry for help. And you go over, and you see somebody has fallen down into a well 20 feet below, and they can't get up out of the well. And you go, oh, my gosh, you're in such a... And you cry, and you weep, and, and you, you feel their heart, and you feel their pain. But then you just keep on running. So you felt sympathy. But you didn't have compassion. On the other hand, you're running by, and you look down, and you look down at them, and the first thing it registered is they're in a hole. They need help. You don't shed a tear. You don't cry. You don't feel anything. You're driven by the need to go and to get a rope and to try to pull the person out of the hole. And you, you may not ever have any tears or emotion or anything being shown. I would suggest the second is better than the first. Be good to have both, but what good is your sympathy without real compassion? Compassion drives you to do something about it. So when Jesus had compassion on the lost, uh, he did something about it. And I think it's the same, same thing with us. And I guess I'm kind of exercised about the gay thing because no matter how hard we try, it keeps going that they're the enemy, we're against them, um, they feel it, they know it, and end of conversation. And I'd like to say, let, let's open the conversation without compromising the faith, but, but without, without this kind of, you know, what, where does 1 Corinthians 13 ever come into our lives? You know, without love, we're nothing. You know, I'd like to suggest that we um, get a little bit more love. Amen? Amen? Love for God and love for our neighbor. Okay, it's 1030. Let's take a break.
That was an awesome video. Yeah. Welcome back, Danny Lehman. Oh, that was, I had never seen that before. That was a great illustration of what I was talking about. The only problem was the 49ers are my team. And I hate the Seahawks. Too many, you, oh, you guys, from, how many are from Washington? Uh, you know what, though? The, the Arizona Cardinals are knocking everybody off this year, so I don't even know if either the Seahawks or the 49ers are going to make the playoffs. We'll see. But the Seahawks lost again the other day, but the 49ers won, but they're frustrating me so bad. I, I had six heart attacks last Sunday and only three heart attacks this last Sunday. But it's, uh, my son, he's, he's a 49er fan, but he lives in North Carolina, and we're texting the whole game, and oh. But anyway, it's fun. But, but what a great illustration, how huh? you just fall in love with your team, and those guys just couldn't keep quiet at the end, just because you love your team, and your team makes a good play, so you want to say, go God, you know, and praise the Lord for what he did, you know, and Praise the Lord for his wonderful acts. And all the way through the Bible, it says, you know, you're either, you can't make this hardcore, I guess, but you basically worship the Lord for who he is, and you praise the Lord for what he's done. And, and how can you do anything but worship? And that's why in Romans 12, it says this is your reasonable service. This is your logical thing you do. It's just logical for these guys to go crazy about their team when the team wins. And, and, you know, because you get emotion. And I think it's a good, because sports is such an open door for a lot of people in our culture. It's, it's just great to draw a sports parable like this, you know, like Jesus drew in his parables. And says, well, is God an egomaniac? Well, this is the way I would look at it. And then show him something like that it would be a great apologetic and, and understanding. It was painful to watch those plays, though. I remember living through those. Oh, gosh. Well, he was, that guy was holding Crabtree, but that never got called. <laughs> okay, guys, I did a lot of talking in that last session with a lot of heady stuff. So please, if you have any questions or anything you don't get, I mean, not even that I totally get it, but um, I, I think what I described, I tried to do my best on the whole very deep question of predestination and all that stuff. It's a hard one, but... <coughs> It's just, it's just hard because especially, and this is a good presupposition we have in YWAM, everything as far as um, your spiritual growth has to be rooted in the character of God. You know, so when you get back to the character of God and he's just in all of his ways, and when something unjust happens it's understandable to have questions and say, now, wait a minute. If God's just, why did this unjust thing happen? So you have a worldview. Now, remember what I said about uh, this book? Um, this book here, this Bible, is 100% inspired by God, and this book contains absolute truth. Um, my interpretation of it contains some absolute truth and some Danny Lehman opinion. That's just because I'm an, a human being. And so the question comes down to, like, for instance, with the Calvinist-Arminian thing, is what makes more sense in light of the character of God as revealed in the rest of Scripture? So when I look at verses on predestination and go, you know, there's three passages in the whole New Testament that even deal with the subject. 
None of them conclusively say that we're predestined to heaven or hell. And they seem to say we're pre- it's not non-believers being predestined to heaven and hell. In context, none of the passages are even talking about eternal salvation. They're talking about Pharaoh in time, about how God dealt with the Egyptian leader. They're talking about we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So if you just read it, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. That's us, Christians. And we're called according to his purpose. That's Christians. Whom he foreknew, them he did predestinate to do what? He wanted we Christians to be conformed to the image of Christ. So it's not even talking about lost people being predestined to get saved. It's talking about saved people being predestined to be like Christ. And then, um, and, and that's his predestiny. But, but does that mean it's an absolute fiat that it has to happen? And which is another question. Does the, is the will of God always being done? And, and to me, you have to say no. Because God continually tells us, don't do that because that's not my will. Do that, that's my will. Pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because apparently it's not being done on earth as it is in heaven, so we got to pray for it to be done. And then you have the whole strong emphasis in the Bible on spiritual warfare. Every time you turn around in the New Testament, oh, thank you. Uh, every time you turn around in the New Testament, the New, the New Testament, there's a warfare going on. The, the devil's blinding the minds of people that don't believe. Uh, the devil's accusing the brethren. Uh, the devil is possessing people. Um, the devil is, is twisting people's minds concerning the truth. The devil is seducing people. You got that all the way through. So with, with an evangelical, with, oh, sorry about that. I'm going to break your guitar. United breaks guitars, but I don't. <laughs> Anybody ever see that video? That's a funny one. That's what you call Vengeance. Oh, it's plugged in, okay. I'm trying not to break this thing, David. Um, where was I? You weren't listening either, were you? <laughs> That's a funny story I had with me and Daniel one day. He had just gotten back from DTS. And I said, hey, let's, let's just go surfing and talk about your DTS and have a good time. And he said, okay, so... We went surfing, and we got out of the water, and we were standing there just watching the waves, and I was giving him what I thought was my great fatherly wisdom, being the YWAM leader that I am, and being real spiritual and all this, and I'm, I'm giving him, well, you know, the Bible says, and I think this and that, and, and right in the middle of my, my little chat, I forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> so I, I said, and then I said, I forgot what I was talking about. What was I talking about? He goes, I don't know. I wasn't listening. <laughs> <laughs> Some people would have got offended by that, but we just laughed because we're both space cases. <laughs> Although he didn't take as much acid as I did, so he doesn't have the excuses I do. You know. Okay, um, please, any, any questions about these issues, these deep theological issues, or are you all settled? Yeah.
sir. Great question, great question. I'll give you a short answer. Um, well, let me point out something interesting. In Matthew 7, 1, Jesus said, Don't judge lest you be judged. For with the same judgment you judge, you're going to be judged. And with the same measure you judge somebody else, you're going to get judged. Very clear, right? But six verses later, in the same chapter, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine or before pigs because they'll take your pearls of truth, trample them under their feet, and turn around and tear you apart. So therefore, don't cast your pearls in front of pigs, which presupposes you have to make a judgment on who's a pig and who's not. See, so, so um, the same Jesus in the same paragraph said that. So he wasn't contradicting each other, or contradicting himself. He was simply saying... You, you you make judgments. I mean, uh, I made a judgment a couple minutes ago that I had to go to the bathroom. I could have judged to stay here and be uncomfortable or to go to the bathroom and and be comfortable. So I judge. Um, my wife and I are supposed to go shopping tonight, so please pray for me that I would have great uh, wisdom. <laughs> it's always a battle, I tell you. It's my cheapness versus her liberty. But, um, but we're going shopping tonight, and we will be making judgments. Now, if I want peace in the home, I will say, wonderful, dear. <laughs> Whatever you want. You think we need a king-size bed, even though I'm only five foot six and you're only five foot three? Knock yourself out. <laughs> but probably I'll say... Well, Jesus said his disciples didn't have a place to lay their head. So I don't know. If, <laughs> no, I don't know. Nope. I was, I was telling Darla up there just a second ago. Um, I said, oh, my wife's been taking a, she took a week off from the Go Center uh, thing. So I said, she's much happier this week because she doesn't have as many painful people to deal with. And, uh, and Darla said, oh, well, that's good. And I said, yeah. I said, she stopped throwing knives at me the other day. <laughs> it was just a joke. It was a joke. <laughs> Okay, um, anyway, getting back to the d judging and discerning. You're making judgment. You, you go in and you say, well, um, is it worth four bucks for me to buy a pint of Haagen-Dazs ice cream? Well, I can get Breyer's ice cream for half the price. I make a judgment. So you make judgments all day long. Uh, should I fast today? Should I not? Should I, should I exercise today? Should I not? What time should I get up tomorrow? You're, you're making judgment calls all the time based on values. Uh, one of my big things, I really push quiet times. I said, well, you're going to have to choose. You're going to stay up late at night and goof off or get to bed at a decent time so you can get up in the morning and spend time with God. That's a discerning judgment you've got to make. But the, the contrast between the gifts and the fruit, it says the manifest... Th this is interesting, too. You can... No extra charge on this one. But there's two times the word manifestation is in the New Testament. In the same book... In 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about the manifestation of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 4, it talks about the manifestation of the truth. So we need Spirit and truth. 
See, so that's why I'm, and, and of course my topic this week is truth, so that's why you'll have other people talk about the Holy Spirit. So, so um, you, you're commanded, like in John 7, 24, Jesus said this. He said, um, don't judge according to outward appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So it's not that we're never supposed to judge. Is that when we, we are called to judge, but we're called to judge righteous judgment. I think what he's talking about in, in Matthew 7 and, of course, in Romans 14.10 and um, uh, other place escapes me for now, um, it tells us not to judge. But that's to put ourselves in a position of rendering a verdict on somebody else. It's not what we're talking about in discernment. We're talking about wisdom to decide the right thing. You know, and sometimes that comes down to judgment. I've been invited a couple of times. It's a tough assignment uh, where two factions of a church are fighting with one another. And I, I was invited to go on an outer island to one of these about two years ago, and man, it was nasty. But um, it, it was actually a whole denomination on an outer island. And um, they're all basically pointing the finger at this one guy and saying that he's a pain in the neck and, and we're going to bail on the denomination if the guy doesn't change. It was pretty heavy. So the denominational guys came in, but they brought, they brought me in because I'm, I'm not in the hierarchy of the denomination and they thought I could be objective. You know, which, and I had friends on both sides of the argu uh, argument. So I knew I was going to make somebody mad and somebody happy because I had to render a judgment. And so as the thing came down, um, to me it was painfully obvious the guy that everybody was mad at was at fault. And I just got with him at lunchtime. I pulled him aside and I said, bro, there ain't no way out of this but for you to humble yourself. I said, now, what I'm going to ask you to do, even though you think you're right, I need you to go with, there's five of us here that think you're wrong. And then there's another five pastors on the island that think you're wrong. So you got 11 guns pointed at your head right now. I said, I know you don't see it, but I want you to trust us that we see it, and I want you to go out there at 1 o'clock and humble yourself and ask their forgiveness and help and have us help walk you through this. And it wasn't like adultery or anything like that. It was just church polity and church decisions. And it was one of those things we needed discernment on because it wasn't clear cut. It wasn't like somebody was out robbing the church money or something. And the guy did what we told him. I said, just do it by faith, trusting your brothers who love you. There's nobody out here trying to get your job. There's nobody trying to fire you. All we want you to do is to humble yourself, or these guys are going to turn turkey, and they're going to run away from you. And I, I just looked him in the eye. I told him as straight as I could. And, uh, and he did for two days. And then he went back to his old ways, and that whole denomination split. It was really a bummer. And it, but that was a classic example of, there was no black and white one of the Ten Commandments that the guy had broken. It was just, it was his attitude, and it was his, his, I'll tell you what it was over. It was over the subject of church discipline. So he took the Bible pretty hardcore, pretty fundamentally, that when somebody, like one guy went off and, and you know, he did some sexual sin, so the guy was requiring him to come back and confess his sin in front of the whole church. Because he was a public figure, and this guy interpreted 1 Timothy 5 when it says, when the elders sin, rebuke in front of everybody. So he wanted to bring the guy in because he was a worship leader, and, and he needs to be rebuked in front of the whole church. 
And the other guy said, man, that's a, that's a bit harsh, man. Why don't you just forgive him and put somebody with him to, you know, make him accountable and so forth. And no, nah, I got what the Bible says. You guys aren't standing for the truth. And that's when it came to, and can you understand, no matter where your theological camp is, you still got to have the spirit of Jesus. You still got to have the attitude of Jesus. I had a guy one time who, um, you can still, if you dig me up on the internet, you can find all kinds of trash about me on the internet, and a lot of it is just not true. And I, I actually went on a Matthew 18 to the guy that was spreading, he was calling me a heretic and everything. But he, had, he was calling a lot of other people, a lot of other good people heretics, so I was kind of comforted. But, um, I mean, Greg Laurie was a heretic, Billy Graham's a heretic. So I was in good company, so I wasn't all, I wasn't wounded. But I was trying, I said, bro, anybody, you know, in the day, like in the old days, you had to get a publisher to buy into your thing and slam me, and no publisher would have published these things about me. But you got me published on the internet. You got all the stink about me. And I said, it's just not true. And, um, and the guy said, ah, nah. and, and so, so I, I did the, the Matthew 18. I took two or three witnesses back. Uh, it was two pastors. They found me not guilty. And the guy said, you're a liar. You might have them fooled, but you don't have me fooled. Oh, you're a liar. You got Lauren Cunningham fooled, but you don't have me fooled because you're a liar. You're, you're an apostate. You're part of the end-time antichrist uh, conspiracy to the European common market. I mean, this guy was way out there. So uh, I, I finally gave up the argument with him, and I said, bro, I don't want to fight with you. I, I, you know, you got your opinion. I got my opinion. My pastor friends have their opinion. Why don't we just say, let's just love each other and call it even? He said, love, this is a quote. He says, I'm not interested in love. I'm interested in truth. And I'm going, I looked at the other pastors and I went, whoa, man, this guy is, <laughs> the lights are on, but nobody's home. <laughs> I mean, this guy, <laughs> he, what he was saying was, my view of this situation is based on absolute truth. And I have discerned that truth in between my two ears. And two established megachurch pastors were there, and this guy, and he would not back down. And finally, I got in the last punch. I said, well, bro, this is probably the last time we're going to be together, but I just want you to know something. Whatever kind of Christianity you represent, and whoever you are, my prayer is that I would be the opposite. I don't want nothing to do with that attitude. And the pastors went, ooh, and <laughs> we walked out. Because it, it's like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. He goes through seven virtues. He said, though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I can um, understand all mysteries, I understand predestination. I understand election. I understand the Israel-Palestinian conflict totally, absolutely. I understand this. I understand the... the b- b- I, I, uh, I could even give my body to be burned and be a martyr, which I, th- I think that's a pretty... You know, you give your, if you're a martyr, that's pretty high up on the list of holiness, right? All right, Danny, confess Jesus or, or, or renounce Jesus as Lord or I'll blow your head off. Go ahead and blow. Let's, let, I want to splatter this particular wall. Blow my head off. I don't care. I'm going to heaven when I die. You know, let's say I had that kind of victory. Paul said, if you don't do that out of love, you're a zero. How many of you know how far would we go 
in our relationships with one another and in our relationship to the world if we lived those three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. And I'm talking to myself too. You know, how, how often do I talk about people or talk to people and I don't do it in love? You know, man, it's a shame. So we need the, we need the spirit. If I could throw a big blanket over this whole thing, it would be you can be either one or all of these things. And I, I'm kind of a mixture of all of them, but I land somewhere on the charismatic evangelical. Uh, Dan and I talk about this sometimes. I'm, I'm a tad bit more here, and Daniel's a tad bit more there. Uh, but we're still, you know, we, we got to go according to our gifts and so forth. My son David is a lot more like me in the area. He's a word guy. He's a cognitive guy. He's a preacher guy. Daniel's more of a worship leader guy, more, probably more in touch with the Holy Spirit. Like if we're in a meeting and Daniel's discerning something's going on, I submit to his discernment because he's got more discernment than I do. My wife does too. In fact, I'll just say this uh, for those of you that ever plan on getting married, especially you guys. Most of us guys are knuckleheads and um, um, lugs. And uh, when I think of the four or five worst decisions I've ever made in my life, they were all ones that my wife told me not to do it. <laughs> so I have learned, well, I'm learning to listen to my wife. Now, if she wants to buy a king-size bed tonight and I want to get a little caught, she'll probably win the argument, but that's the way it goes. Anyway, anyway but, um, but I have learned uh, that she's got more discernment than I do, and I have learned to uh, play by the rules. Okay, anybody else? Science about to fall down on your head there, bro. Yes. I think the question you asked, like, is there evidence outside the Bible that Jesus is the Son of God? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, well, first of all, was there a historical figure? named Jesus of Nazareth that existed. That, that's beyond dispute. Yes, everybody. I mean, the fact that we have A.D. and B.C. is, is good evidence of that. Um, well, again, see, if we get back to yesterday's text, faith is the substance of things that we hope for and the evidence of things we cannot see. Now, an illustration from nature, now this isn't Jesus necessarily, this is, this is just for the existence of God, that um, Billy, Billy Graham is fond of saying, you cannot see the wind, but you can see the effect of the wind. You can see evidence that wind exists. So if somebody says, do you believe wind and breezes exist in Hawaii? You would say, sure. And they say, have you ever seen the wind? Well, not technically, but I've seen the palm trees flowing in the wind, so I can see evidence that there is such a thing as wind. So the Bible is not adverse to us being like in a courtroom and getting up and giving the evidence about a God that we cannot see. For instance, in Psalm 19, David said, this is a good worship psalm, by the way. In fact, if I may say so myself, this is Daniel's best song, in my opinion. Um, I don't know if you ever, it's on his first album, I think it is. But it goes, uh, uh, you are creator, the brilliant God, 
The heavens are of all that you are. Night and the day speaking words from afar that speak of the glory of God. That's, that's Daniel's best song on his first album. But um, it's taken out of Psalm 19. The heavens declare. Now, the word declare means to speak. Now, are the heavens literally speaking? No. But in a figure of speech, the heavens are shouting something. What are they shouting? The heavens are shouting about the glory of God. Um, uh, day after day, they utter forth their speech. Night after night, they speak forth knowledge. And in Romans chapter 1, it says because of that, people are without any excuses not to believe in God. You've got to go against your intuitive natural understanding as a human being not to believe in God. Your alternative is to believe that, and this, this is first grade logic. This is, this is six-year-old stuff. You've either got to believe that something, somebody out there was an intelligent creator, or you have to believe that everything, the stars, the moon, the sky, the tides that perfectly guide our uh, from the moon guide our tides to the 26 bones in your hand that work perfectly to do so many things to the incredible miracle of your eyeball receiving messages from your brain to help you to see and vice versa the incredible mystery of a woman getting pregnant uh, the non-tangible things of the love that we have for one another the fact that we have taste buds all of these things just happen by random chance so good luck, you know, if you want to take it by chance. And I think we, in my opinion, we, we, got, we got a thousand votes on our side in this issue. You know, so getting back to your, to your thing, if, if they will sit down and listen to us, we can give them evidence for faith in God. Now, when it gets to Jesus himself, okay, where is the evidence that Jesus is who he said he is? Well, we know he existed. And then you have to ask the question, are the New Testament Gospels reliable? Can we rely on them that they were based on? When Matthew says this happened, did it really happen? And so that's a whole area of study, and I can, I can bring in some books for you to look at. But um, you're just looking at the evidence uh, for what Jesus did. For instance, you look at Matthew, and much of it is... Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in Christ. You look at Mark, it's more of an action book where it's mostly miracles and healings almost every chapter. Then you look at Luke, and it's Jesus the human, and, and where he exalts women, and he exalts the poor, and he exalts children. And uh, he talks a lot about the Samaritans in a positive way. And Luke is totally different than the others. And then John is the one that talks about Jesus being the Son of God. Now, interesting, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't make a whole lot of statements about Jesus being God. But John is loaded with them, and Paul's writings are loaded with them. So this is where we believe that God put the whole canon of Scripture together so we get a full-orbed picture of Christ. You have the Jewish Messiah in Matthew. You have the miracle-working Jesus in Mark. You have the human Jesus in Luke. There's 61 events in Luke that are not in the other Gospels. And then you got the Gospel of John, which in the very first verse starts out, and it says, 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But the Greek word there is that in the beginning was the Logos, the Logos was with Theos, and the Logos was Theos. The Logos was God. Who's the Logos? Verse 14 says, The Logos took on human flesh and built its tabernacle among us, literally. So, Jesus is the human Logos. Now, why did John use the word Logos? This is where uh, Lauren and I were talking at the break time about the human element in the scriptures. Why did John write his gospel totally different than the other three guys? Now, we don't know what he knew of the other guys, but we do know what he wrote. Apparently, there was a heresy going around in the church that we call Gnosticism. And in Gnosticism, they believed that Jesus was more of a phantom, like he didn't use, he didn't, he didn't leave footprints when he walked across the sand. He was kind of a floating immaterial, like you couldn't pat him on the, I'm sorry about that, I missed it. You couldn't pat him on the back uh, because his back, you, you just go through his back because he was kind of an immaterial phantom ghost type of figure. And the Gnostics thought that all material, all matter, including human flesh, was evil. That's what the Greeks taught, and that was coming into the church. By the time John wrote his gospel, about 85 or 90 A.D. So, because it came in around the 60s. And it's, there's hints of it in Colossians, he, uh, uh, Colossians Hebrews, and um, uh, First John. Now, getting back to, uh, what was I talking about before that? Oh, the logos. So, the Greeks had this understanding of the logos. In other words, every culture has its virtues, right? And, and if we just go around uh, all of it, like the, I don't want to pick on anybody, but I think of the, the Norwegians are really good at following through on things. The Americans are really good at starting things, maybe not so hot on following through with things. Uh, the Germans are very efficient in what they do, as are the Japanese. So you can, you can feel or you can uh, discover redemptive gifts in all the different cultures. But uh, in the Greeks, their, their virtue was what they called zoe. And zoe was the Greek word for life. And it's not only life because I believe the doctrine, but it's experiential. I got life, man. I'm stoked. I got a spring in my step and a stoke in my heart. I am, I'm alive. As opposed to bios, which from which we get our word biological. A, a plant is alive, but it doesn't have zoe. So the Greeks said the way to zoe is by logos, by logic, logos, logic, reason. A does not equal non-A, so it's logical, reasonable, linear thought. As opposed to the Hebrews where it was much more experiential, much more, much more give and take and so forth, but the Greeks were very... They were really into perfection. They were really into airtight arguments. They were really into Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and some of these brainy people. And John comes into the middle of it and says, <clears throat> you guys want logos? You guys want Zoe? I'll tell you where to get it. I am the way, the truth, and the Zoe, Jesus said. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with theos, God. 
And the Logos was Theos. And the Logos took on human flesh and dwelt among us. You want Logos? I got Logos. You want Zoe? I got Zoe. I got Jesus, and it's all about him. And so John exalts Christ to the place of, of, of deity. Jesus said, I and the Father are one in the book of John, John 10.30. John 14, Jesus said, um, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Um, Thomas, at the end of the book of John, when he sees the resurrected Christ, he says, my Lord and my God. So you see this all the way through the book of John because John is writing to Greeks and he's trying to get the Greeks to understand he's the God of the Greeks. Matthew's writing to the God of the Jews. Same God, but he's got a different audience. Paul's writing to the Gentiles, mostly. But he uses a lot of Jewish stuff coming out of the fact that he was a rabbi. So you see, God put all this together in the Word so that we would get that much better of an understanding of how he reveals himself to people. See? And, and let me say a little bit about this word, revelation. That, and we charismatic Pentecostals are, are more guilty of this than the other folks. And that is we believe... Well, I'll, I'll just flat out tell you this. How many of you ever heard of a preacher named John MacArthur? Anybody hear of John MacArthur? Okay, he is he's the classic fundamentalist. Uh, excellent Bible teacher. Uh, one of the most popular Bible teachers in the world as far as if you go by his recorded messages being downloaded and in the old days his cassettes or CDs being bought. Got a ch big church in Southern California, but he is absolutely against any kind of modern-day revelation. When, when, when we say God spoke to us, he said, you're crazy. God doesn't speak anymore. He spoke right in the Bible, and that's all you need. Just do what the Bible says. You got a brain, and you got a Bible. Just do what it says. And we're going, no, John. It's <laughs> we, we can actually hear from God. We can, we can hear his voice. I mean, YWAM's built on this, you know. But John MacArthur thinks YWAM is just Looney Tunes. You know, even though we got 20,000 staff around the world in 190 countries, he don't want to be confused with the facts. So, but my point for the poor guy is that he is right in the sense of we can go too far. And unfortunately, he just did a big conference called Strange Fire, and he threw us all under the bus, all 450 million of us. He threw us under the bus and said, we're all a bunch of Looney Tunes. And I just go, John, yes, he revealed himself in the Bible, but it tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul prayed for the Ephesians to have wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. See? So those of you who believe that the Bible's God's word and you believe that God can speak, you're on top of the world because you get the best of both worlds. You get the most of the evangelical fundamental world with your... Uh, you know, your Bible knowledge and understanding, and you get your Pentecostal charismatic experiential Christianity. And, what, and again, this is because my week is on the Word. I'm trying to warn you about going to extremes in your experiences. Some people live from experience to experience. And if they don't have a razzle-dazzle charismatic experience in this prayer meeting or in that worship service, then they go out and drink a bunch of wine or something. Uh, but um, if you're uh, not in bondage to experiences, but you love it when they happen, then you're okay. You know, because the issue, as we talked about earlier in the class, the issue is being um, 
should I say, the, the issue is being faithful, full of faith, not full of feelings. Now, the problem with guys like John MacArthur, he would say, I never feel God. I just believe the truth. Well, I feel sorry for you. I feel God sometimes, but my faith is not based on feelings. My faith is based on faith. My faith is based on what is true, and I believe the truth. And you can see this theme again and again and again throughout um, the New Testament. Questions, comments, observations, criticisms. Yeah, um, it's taking a long time to unpack this, but there are Greek ways of thinking, and there are Hebrew ways of thinking in general. And a lot of times, if if you're just going by logic and reason and linear reasoning down the line, you won't have much of an experiential relationship with God. For instance. The, the scenario I gave between me and Grace, let's say, everybody remember that? I offended Grace, Grace forgave me, and so forth. I drew the picture of w- the way all of us would see what happened. I sinned against her on Tuesday, she confronted me on Tuesday, I blew her off, and on Wednesday God speaks to me, and I go back and I ask her forgiveness because God has convicted me and told me to go apologize. What happened? Somewhere between Monday and, or Tuesday and Wednesday, God spoke to me, convicted me, and I went back. When you look at that, when you look at that um, scenario with purely Greek thinking, you go, now wait a minute, Danny. It looks like that's the way it happened. But actually, God doesn't live in time like we do. And so when she prayed and asked God to convict you of your sin, God didn't actually hear her on Tuesday night. God predestined the whole thing to happen because he doesn't live in time anyway. You see, God is like up in a helicopter and we're in the parade. And we give all these lame illustrations about how to figure out an infinite God and how he dwells in time. And so if you just try to take it logically, like, for instance, um, uh, this verse yesterday, 11.6. It is impossible to please God but by faith. Now, what does that tell you? If you're a Hebrew thinker, you think, wow, if I exercise faith, I can bring actual um, feelings of pleasure to the creator of the universe. That to me, that's a very comforting thought. I mean, that me and God, man, we got it going, man. We make a majority, man. I pleased him by my faith. But the hardcore Greek thinker would say, well, you didn't actually, because God is immovable. Now, this is, this is a theological word. You can look it up if you want, and you'll get all kinds of complicated explanations in a textbook. But it's what we call the immutability of God. That means God can't change. Now, how many of you know God can't change? 
you don't want him mad one day and happy the next day and loving you one day and not loving you the next day. And, you know, you want, you want a consistent God, right? And so they say, well, uh, God doesn't change, so he can't be moved. It's, it's what they call the impassibility of God. You can't change God. God doesn't have emotions that go up and down and in and out. And so if you say, like I said yesterday, do you think God's always in a good mood? Well, yes and no. Do you think God's always in a bad mood? Well, yes and no. Because somehow, billions of exchanges are happening around the world every day. Um, some people right now are watching porno. Some people are stealing from people today. That's making God grieve. There are pastors right now running off with their secretaries and stealing money out of the pot. That grieves God. That makes God angry. But at the very same second, there are billions of people around the world pleasing God and making him happy. So you, you can't say, yes, he's always in a good mood, or no, he's never in a good mood. See what I mean? Because we can only look at things through our glasses in the way that we experience them. And, and to tell you the truth, all those questions, I don't know the answer to those questions. I don't have to. I'm not called to be God. I'm called to be human. I'm called to be relational, and God has declared in his word he wants relationship with me. So if, if somebody comes and says, well, Danny, what actually happened is before the foundation of the world, billions and billions of years ago, God knew there was going to be a grace, and God knew there was going to be a Danny, and he knew they were going to have this interaction, and God caused um, an altercation between you and her, and God caused this to happen, and it was all outside of time, and it, it didn't even actually happen. It was all just done by God. See what I mean? It gets crazy. And, I, and, and here's my, here's my w what I would say is a word of wisdom for you. You might not think so. You see, whether you're a Calvinist that's a predestinarian or you're a Wesleyan that's a free will theist or an, what we might call an open theist and not believe God totally knows the future or you might be a left-wing um, social action Christian, or you might be a right-wing, heaven and hell, turn or burn Christian. All, whatever your viewpoint is, try not to be in bondage to a theological system. And I'll give you a classic example. How many of you have ever, well, this is good. There's a lot of not, how many of you are not Americans? Put your hands up. Oh, most of you. This is great. All right. How many of you Americans, well, we'll throw the Canadians in with the Americans on this because it's, uh, no, it'll, it'll make sense. Um, in North America, there was a series of books out um, a couple years ago, and a, and, a, and a very failed bad movie came out of it with Nicolas Cage called, called Left Behind. Now, I didn't see the movie, but it had such bad reviews, I didn't even go see it. But um, uh, that was based on a theological system that Christ is not just coming back. Christ is coming back twice. He comes back once for a rapture of the church and everybody else is left behind. And so apparently in the movie, the, uh, Nicolas Cage is a backslidden airplane pilot and People get raptured off his plane, and people are raptured all over the world. And there's going to be this chaos in the world in between the first time Jesus comes back the second time <laughs> and the second time he comes back the second time. You understand what I'm saying? So, so there's a two-stage second coming like a two-stage rocket. And that's what they call in theology 
a dispensational view on the end times. I, I'm sorry about these big words, but please, that's why I, I need you to raise your hands if you don't get it. It's that there are certain dispensations that God has set, and we're now in the dispensation of the church. So you might wonder, those of you not from America, now, you just tell me. Tell me if I'm judging this wrong. Where were you guys from? Germany, Norway, Switzerland? Switzerland? Sweden? New Zealand. Okay, the Kiwis as well. The Left Behind books don't sell in, in New Zealand. They don't sell in Australia either. Because they have not been influenced by the dispensational view of the end times. And um, how many of you have heard both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? How many of you have heard the Israel side? That these Hamas guys, they keep bombing us. They, they just, a couple of nutcases just went into a synagogue yesterday and killed uh, three Americans and one Jewish rabbi uh, in cold blood. I mean, terrible thing. So, you know, I think any, any Christian, any person would feel abhorrent about that. It would be terrible. But some of us have a theological bias towards Israel because they brought us the Messiah. They're God's chosen people. And God has a plan for them in the end times, according to one view. Now, John Calvin... Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, and many others believed that the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament were fulfilled spiritually in Christ. And that God doesn't have any bigger plan for the Jews than he has for anybody else in the world today. Now you say that to some Americans and they will go bazonkers on you. You're standing against the apple of God's eye. You're standing against the Jewish people. Now, by the way, I'm from a denomination that is very pro-Israel, and I am pro-Israel. So I'm not, I'm just saying that I have bought into a system of theology that breaks up the second coming into a rapture where people are left behind when Jesus comes for his saints, and then there is another second coming in which Jesus comes back with his saints and stands on the Mount of Olives and so forth and so on. My, my point is not to get you on one side or the other. My point is to let you see that vast numbers of Christians have had different viewpoints because of different systems. If you come to the text and you've already got a predisposition that God has a special plan for Israel, it all makes sense because Israel rejects Christ, but Romans 9 says there's going to be a revival among the Jews in the end times, and the Jews are going to come in, and so all Israel will be saved. It says it right there in Romans 9. Another set of glasses comes and says, well, in the Old Testament it says the Passover was to be an ordinance forever. But the New Testament says Christ is our Passover. So Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover. In the Old Testament, it says that we are to get rest in the promised land. But the book of Hebrews says we get our rest in Christ. In the Old Testament, it says, I will restore and rebuild the tabernacle of David. In the New Testament, the tabernacle of David being restored happens in Acts chapter 15 when the Gentiles are included into the Jewish community and the church. So, which one are you going to go with? And, and I hope you can understand how I've given both sides of the story. And, 
and, and I'm not saying one of them is right. I mean, I lean toward one rather than the other, but I can't say for, I don't have absolute truth on that. And we have split so many churches and so many denominations over the second coming of Christ. And you know what? He hasn't come yet. He came the first time, and we're fighting about when he's going to come the second time when nobody knows. Because those verses in Daniel and in Revelation can be taken different ways. The Olivet Discourse of Christ in Matthew 24 and 25 can be looked at in different ways. Some people think all the destruction and the heavens being on fire and all that happened at 70 A.D. And it's just figurative language, just like it says in Isaiah. See, I, I know I'm confusing you, but I'm doing it on purpose because I'm trying to get you to see, just get back to your Bible and read what your Bible says and do what it says. And if you want to study these things, please do. But don't have the arrogance to say that your way of looking at the absolute truth is the absolute truth. And that's why we should have just a tad bit, and, and uh, not to toot YWAM's horn, but that's the wonderful thing about YWAM, is you can sit behind a lunch table here and talk about this stuff and laugh about it and, uh, and have a good time and learn from one another because we all come from different persuasions. Even the Calvinist deal. I got, I'm not much of a Calvinist, but I love to talk to them. They tend to be more peaceful because <laughs> they don't think it all depends on them. God's going to do it whether we do it or not. So it's kind of an enviable position to have, you know. I'm all worried about my free will and how I'm going to mess things up if I screw up today, you know. <laughs> Can you, so, so a Calvinist system taken to an extreme will make you lazy. An Arminian system taken to an extreme will make you neurotic. And I say, maybe we need a little bit of both. And, and good question. Why doesn't the Bible make it more clear? You ever, you ever ask yourself that question? Why are we fighting and splitting over the second coming? Why didn't God just make it clearer? These guys, I oh, did make it clear. Israel, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We, Lauren Cunningham has actually had people come to him and say, if you don't stand behind our view of Israel, God's going to destroy YWAM. And we've had other people say the opposite. You know what Lauren Cunningham says? I just want to go for the completion of the Great Commission. That's all I'm worried about. Jesus is going to come back when he's going to come back, but he came the first time and he told me to go into all the world and preach the gospel, so that's where I'm going. Hop on board, and if you're not ready, the train is leaving the dock. We're going. You know, and I think that's, that's the way to look at it to me. So, so maybe the... the takeaway today is uh, let's just rejoice that God has revealed himself to us in the Bible and let's take our Bibles and study them and read them using basic inductive Bible study tools and you might say I don't need any tools Danny I just need to no just try interpreting the Bible without these tools and rules and you'll find out where it gets you I just believe take the Bible literally oh yeah you think Jesus literally has wool coming out of his uh, pores of his skin and that he actually looks like a lamb? Do you think Jesus literally meant when he said, if your right eye offends you, gouge it out of your head and throw it away? Do you think he literally meant that? When the Bible says that the new Jerusalem is descending out of heaven from God in the book of Revelation, and it says it is 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high, 
1,500 miles long. We're talking about a city that is a cube stretching from San Francisco to Kansas City and 1,500 miles up. The highest airplane that flew you here to Hawaii was at 37,000 feet, which is about six miles max. 1,500 mile, a, a wall that's 1,500 miles high, and it descends out of heaven from God. 1,500 miles. Is that literal? Maybe it's a figure of speech. And then if you take the book of Revelation and you go through the rest of the Bible, you'll find a lot of these same figures of speech are used throughout the Bible. See? And so why am I saying this? It's just that enjoy reading your Bible, get passionate for the Word, but don't, so, don't be so passionate about one aspect of it. Now, uh, our sister back here a second ago was talking about um, gifts, and, and we're all, like, I'm an evangelist, so I tend to see a lot of evangelism in the Bible that other people might not see because of my subjective bias based on my gift. But I try to recognize that's a gift. Not everybody's going to see it like I do. And it's the same way my friend Phil Cunningham from the um, ships. Every day he wears a justice shirt. He must have 25 shirts. But do justice. God's a God of justice. Justice matters. Just I feel like, Phil, I get it. I get it. But he's passionate about justice, and that's good because that's the way God wired him to be. But I would just, and, and I do encourage him, Phil, don't forget about the lost. Don't forget about evangelism and the fact that people can be very just on the earth and still go to hell. So let's remember that. And then he comes to me and says, Danny, don't forget about the poor and don't forget about... So it's good. Iron sharpens iron. And so we all can um, learn from one another. But try not to buy into a particular system. David Hamilton and I were having a discussion one day on this issue. Should we... How passionate should we be about just the word and how passionate should we be about systems that are from the word, but they're, in a sense, tainted by our subjective viewpoint? Some of us have an American Jesus, and some of us have a Korean Jesus, and some of us have, you know, you can take your pick. And we, we were asking ourselves, did God ever intend us to study the Bible like that, to, to prove revelation by Daniel, and to make a point about women in ministry Proving 1 Timothy 2 says women shouldn't do anything but should be in silence. And then proving it by 1 Corinthians 14. And, and neglecting 1 Corinthians 11 where women do preach. And what about Priscilla and Aquila? But we got a system. It says no women. Yeah, but what about Deborah? Yeah, no women. But what about Mary? the Can't have women because my system doesn't allow women. Come on, bro. Be honest. How many of you know honesty is a good thing? And how many of you know systems can make you dishonest? Systems can make you not look. I had a woman one time, this is my opinion, but she was loud and obnoxious. And, uh, and I know a lot of men that are loud and obnoxious. So I'm not picking on women, but this particular woman was loud and obnoxious. And everybody's complaining to me about her. Everybody on the base avoided her. If they'd see her in a grocery store, they'd run the other direction. Uh, it was bad. So I tried to talk to her, and I said, well, you know, in 1 Peter, it talks about the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great value. She said, well, I'm sure he wasn't living in the 21st century because I want to tell you. And I said, no, this is the word of God. 
I'm not saying you're, I'm not saying there's not men that are obnoxious. M- men are loud and obnoxious too, probably more than women. But you, in your particular situation, nobody on the base wants. Do, doesn't it humble you to realize nobody wants to be your friend? Because you're loud, you're obnoxious, you're 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 hurtful. You you make fun of people that are not from America. You mock other cultures, and people are tired of it. So why don't you just stop it and just be a more meek and quiet spirit? Well, I'm I'm not going to be meek and quiet. That's that's a bunch of chauvinistic American. And and she ended up leaving the base, and it was sad. She left the base mad at everybody. And everybody said, you know, you you hate to be that way as a Christian, but you go, I'm glad she's gone. She created strife and problems around here because she wouldn't stop her behavior. But my point is, I pointed out to her a verse and she couldn't even receive the verse because she had this fixation that the Bible is against women and Paul was a chauvinist and, and um, the Bible is anti-women and she couldn't let anything else into that system. And that's theological blindness. And so if we can somehow be set free. So David and I came to the conclusion you have to have some systems. Like how would we know God is a trinity unless we compared scripture with scripture? How would we know that the scripture consistently says that we're saved by grace through faith? How would we know consistent? So there's a lot of stuff you got to have a system on, but you, you just can't go crazy with systems. Getting down to the, when, when it really, when the rubber really hits the road, does it really matter when Jesus comes back? I'm going to do the same thing tomorrow I'm doing today regardless. You can only do the will of God one, one, day, one minute at a time. They asked Martin Luther once, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? You know what he said? I'd probably do the same thing I was going to do that I'm going to do tomorrow. And what I was going to do tomorrow was plant a tree. So I'm going to plant a tree tomorrow. Isn't that cool? You do what the will of God is. And then no strife, no hassle, no, you, you anti-Israel, you know. No, these people are not anti-Israel. That's just the way they view the scriptures. Yeah, well, you're too pro-Israel. You're, you're just a, a Zionist. No, that's, that's a label you're putting on me. I'm not a Zionist, but I believe God has a future for Israel, and I think Romans 9 proves that. Yeah, but I'm a, uh, Why fight about it? Let's just have a cup of tea and laugh about it and learn from one another and grow. And if you come down on one side of any issue and you're convinced of it, go for it. Like, like I've, I've really studied as best as I can whether we're supposed to go to every ethnic group in the world with the gospel. Because there is a teaching out there that says, just go to the Gentiles, that's just kind of a general thing. But when Jesus said, make disciples of all the nations, that was just a figure of speech for the world. It's not each individual nation. So you don't have to go up the Amazon to some little tribe up there. And No. I've come to the conclusion, and I've, this is why I'm in YWAM, that we want to reach and strategize to reach every ethnos in the world, whether it's 200 people up the Amazon or 200 million Bengalis in northeast India and Bangladesh. We're going to reach every person with the gospel. So those, that's the kind of stuff that's a fundamental to me. Or else you shouldn't have a YWAM. But we have a YWAM because we're a branch that's got one thing on its mind. Lauren Cunningham is a very, I say this with great reverence, he's very obsessive-compulsive. He's obsessed and compulsed to get the rest of us to follow him on this train that's bound for glory. 
and the glory is found in the nations of the world. And people like you will lead us in worship as we go, and we're going to go into all the world to every nation and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Say amen or oh me. I just remembered it's tw- Oh, wait a minute. I, I'm done at 12.15, so I will let you go 10 minutes early because I kept you 10 minutes too long yesterday because I follow a God of justice, and I'm going to be just to you. So we got five minutes left. Give me any questions, anything that's hanging over that you don't understand. Don't go out of here writing to your parents, say, I'm a heretic. <laughs> Ask me first, then call me a heretic. So uh, anybody have any questions, any uh, vibes, any uh, good job, Danny, uh, anything like that, you know, uh, I'll bring some books tomorrow. Um, might not be a bad idea. Do we have a faithful staff person like David to email me and remind me or text me or something? And Because uh, half of my brain is asleep all the time. Oh, I got prayer journals right in my car right now. Uh, I'll, I'll bring them tomorrow. Yeah, $6 a piece for prayer journals. You, you can run without me. Uh, it's, it's open. I have a $10 bill on the seat in case somebody wants to steal it, but they haven't stole it yet. No, I'm just kidding. Um, where am I parked? I'm parked on the grass, and it's probably the most beat-up, uh, oldest van on the grass, and it's a uh, Ford, um, or it's a Dodge Caravan. Well, why don't you go out and get the whole box and bring them down? we got five minutes. <laughs> it should be... Um, yeah, it's 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 facing this way up there. You'll get it. you'll see it. Green dark green van. We're just a big family around here, aren't we? Do right. you have your hand up? Or you're just leaning on the post there? Okay, if you're not gonna ask any questions, I'm gonna do my um, just for no extra charge. This is one of the ways I try, oh, what did I do? Oh, here we go. This is one of the ways I demonstrate my um, passion for the Word. Uh, I bought this Bible here. Now, this cover was made for me separately, but I bought this Bible here uh, 28 or more years ago. And I purposely got a wide-margin Bible. You can get up and look at this if you want. But I got wide margins because in those days, the only wide-margin Bible they made were, this is made by Cambridge, which is, by the way, we got any Brits here? Where's Sam? I, I just got to take my hat off to the Brits. Oxford and Cambridge are the two best Bible binderies in the world. The Americans are terrible at making Bibles. In fact, I think they make them in order to fall apart so you'll buy more Bibles. But if, but if you buy a good Cambridge or Oxford Bible, and you'll have to pay for it, might cost you over $100 or more. Um, I've got a Bible at home that is a $250 Bible. It's goatskin. But that thing will last me forever. But I got it for under $100 because I had connections with Cambridge. But um, in this, like, if, if you look here in Matthew, you can see how many of my own notes I put in these margins here. Look. 
but the paper is real thin. Now, this is almost 30 years ago. Now, this is the Cambridge Bible, and the paper is really thin. But uh, as I read my Bible and as I studied my Bible, I put my own notes in there. So this is, this is the word of the Lord according to Danny, but I'm not going to publish it. It's just for me. This is my own devotional life just by studying and reading the Bible. Now, um, this here is the second cover. The first cover I had fell off. I took it down to the Hawaii Bible li Library Company in um, Honolulu, and I said, could you put me a new cover on this? It cost me $60. But I paid back in the day, almost 30 years ago, I paid about $40 for it. I put $60 into it, and it has lasted me 30 years. I'd put that up against Zondervan or Nelson or any other American publisher. I would have bought four Bibles by now because I use the Bible a lot. But this one Bible has lasted me almost 30 years. So I got this revelation about eight years ago, uh, or seven or eight years ago, and I said, well, you know, I got two boys. I got Daniel and David, and I've got six grandkids. I got Daniel's four kids, and I got David's two kids. And they both... At this point, it's one of the reasons I moved to Kona, because I'm a hero with these guys now. You know, by the time Malachi's 16, he'll think granddad's a lot of hot air probably, but, but uh, now he thinks I'm a hero. So all these guys look to their granddad as the man of God in the family, and uh, he got him. Great. I hope you, I'm really glad you, glad you went to the right van. You know, can you imagine being in somebody else's van? Okay, we'll get to those in a minute. Anyway, um, so I said, well, I'm gonna, when I die... I'm going to leave this Bible for Daniel and his kids. And then I started a process of transferring notes over into my relatively brand new spanking Oxford Bible. Now, this one, this Bible, you can see how heavy it is compared to this one. Right? Yeah. Okay, the reason is, is since the last 20-some years... Oxford came out with a Bible that's not only got an extra margin, because here, here you got uh, three margins, here, here, and here, but you don't have anything on the spine. But here you have four equidistant margins, so you can fit that many more notes in it. So what I do on a regular basis is I, if I go on an airplane, I'm sitting in an airport, I'll copy notes from here and put it over here, or I'll take this Bible with me in my normal quiet time, and I'll just write insights that I get as I read through the Bible. So it's kind of my own little study Bible. Uh, I could get a Schofield Bible, but I don't want Schofield's quiet time. I could get a MacArthur study Bible, but I don't want MacArthur's quiet time. I could get a Jack Hayford Bible. I don't want Jack Hayford. I want me. I want God to speak to me. So this is my passion for the Word. And when I go to be with the Lord, I hope Daniel puts this in a prominent place in his house so the kids can look at it. I'm sure he will. But Daniel, being the honest person that he is, already said, Dad, nobody can read your writing. Yeah. I went, well, you know what? If nobody ever reads it, it's been a joy for me to do it. Because I get off on going over and over God's word and insights that he gives me. And I could show you, maybe I'll tell you some stories tomorrow about um, times when I was going through real stressful times and I prayed and God gave me a verse or a scripture. And I was in criminal court in 1986 for the hideous crime of training missionaries in a residential zone. I was next to this guy, and I said, what are you in for? He says, 
I raped my mother and I killed my father. What are you in for? I was training missionaries in a residential zone. <laughs> he said, okay, man, okay, okay. No, that didn't really happen. That's a joke. <laughs> um, so anyway, this is just, um, if I can be an example to you, um, this is my suggestion. Christmas is coming. If grandma calls you and says, Lynn, what would you like for Christmas? I want a wide margin Oxford Bible directly <laughs> from England, grandma. You got it. But no, what I would, seriously, what I would do, with me, I'm a wide margin Bible person. If you want to get a Quest study Bible or an NIV study Bible or a life application Bible, or there's tons of different Bibles out there. Get what you need. My, my opinion is have separate commentaries for the Bible and have separate Bible handbooks to give you the background on the Bible. Try to get a Bible that just gives you the text of the Bible. And then put your own notes in it and make it your own personal Bible. But spend money on it and try to get it. Look up on Google. Look up on Consumer Reports. Try to get a Bible that's going to last. And I tell you, it is worth $100, if you can find it, to get yourself a good leather-bound, calfskin, goatskin, whatever, a good Bible. Now, if you're a vegetarian and that offends you, I'm sorry. But um, we got all kinds of animal hides all over the place here. But... but um, but uh, try to get yourself a Bible. But even if you are a vegetarian, you still have to forgive me. So you lose either way. Uh, but uh, so, so encouragement, shop around. Go to, go to the SBS. Look, they have, they've got their new RSV Bibles. And go around and then just follow, find one that you really like. Because if you're going to make it your Bible for the next 25 years, you want to make sure when you first get it. If you got an old beat-up Bible that's falling apart and you can't write in it anyway or something, trust God to give you a good Bible that'll be your Bible that you can carry it with you forever. So that, that's why I brought my two Bibles today. Um, maybe tomorrow I'll bring my fancy, dancy, swancy, 24-carat goatskin Bible. Uh, I got that one as well. Anyway, let's be passionate for the Word. Amen? All right. Lord, thank you for all these folks. Especially my sister Grace here. Lord, she's just such a holy, wonderful person. I pray she'd forgive me for insulting her in that fictitious uh, understanding that we had before. Bless us now as we go in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, by the way, prayer diaries. I'll just leave these here overnight along with some of my books. Um, and you can, we can square away the money tomorrow. But I'm a big fan. I'll give you a commercial tomorrow. But... Start journaling right away and do it the rest of your life. That would be my advice. And that's another way to be passionate for the word. Thank y'all. There are six dollars. Instead of... 17? Six dollars for six dollars, guys. Six dollars. That's good. <laughs> Thank you, Danny. Uh, give it a hand to Danny. Thank you so much. So, um, let's go to lunch. Um, if uh, some of your teams has uh, practice this afternoon, 
my team has practiced one to two. Um, we'll see you tonight uh, at the prayer room. Thank you, guys. Have a good afternoon. Love you, guys.